If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 14. Corwin presented her letter to Dujols the next morning, as he sat in his white and gold study reviewing his correspondence. She watched him scan the note briefly, and then saw him fold a card with his name and location inside the missive and seal it in wax. He summoned a servant who departed without a word, message in hand. There, you see. It is finished. Your brother shall have it in his hand soon. Thank you, my lord. You are very kind said Corwin quietly. And with that she left the room, unwilling to let him see the tears that filled her eyes. She was on her way home at last, for a time Corwin's fears were allayed by this very simple act. Dujols had promised her that the letter would be delivered and she had wanted to believe him. Before long she had discerned that he sold slaves, and much as she disliked the idea of trading in human flesh, she knew that he had unlimited opportunity to send correspondence to the colonies because so many of his customers resided there. Surely, with the promise of great reward, he would make sure that her note got through. In the course of her days in his house, she saw him meet with several well-dressed men, obviously interested in purchasing consignments of slaves for sugar, tobacco, indigo, or cane plantations. Some, she noted were Spanish, while others were obviously from England or the colonies. She avoided them all assiduously, fearing that someone might recognize her and report her whereabouts to Devon Black or the man who had purchased her. In all honesty, Dujol seemed a most considerate and attentive host. He provided her with recent copies of several newspapers, including those most popular in the English colonies. He offered her the consolation of his library, and his completely enclosed garden. When he could not be by her side, he left his personal body servant, Adam, to watch over her and attend to her smallest wishes. Dujols even summoned a seamstress to have her fitted for fine gowns he said would be equal to her station. In most matters, he seemed a perfect gentleman. Corwin tried hard to ignore any doubts she had about the goodwill and concern he constantly professed for her. Her confidence in his good intentions remained constant until late one tropical afternoon when he summoned her to his study. Without preamble, he asked her to sit in an overstuffed red velvet armchair. With growing insistence he began to question her regarding her abduction. She felt forced to fabricate lies about the months she had spent upon the wraith, her escape, and how she had come to find his carriage. The onslaught was difficult to bear. His questions, probing, incisive, betrayed frustration at her silence. She had to repeatedly deny that there was more to her story than he knew. At long last he let her go with a curt dismissal. When the dresses Corwin had been fitted for began to arrive, she found herself forced to confront him with a problem. Despite her preferences in color and style, her new gowns featured low bodices and stiff whalebone corsets. Cut in the modern French fashion, 
They were suited more for a young woman making her debut than a castaway waiting to be returned to her home and family. When she told him this, Dijols frowned. With ill grace he offered to have her measurements taken again, and new dresses made up, Corwin declined his proposal. Though the gowns were not to her taste, she did not want to alienate her protector when she was so dependent upon him for her safety and hope of being rescued. Another instruction she agreed to with great reluctance involved her afternoon bath. Dujols had declared since her first days in his house, that to protect herself from the tropical heat and the many illnesses he felt to be associated with it, she must take a cool bath shortly after the afternoon meal. When she tried to ignore his recommendation, he had drawn her into his study and regaled her for hour after hour about the many fragile young women who had died in the islands because they had become overwarm during the hottest part of the day. She was a guest in his house, and new to these lands, and thus she must trust him in these matters, so, by his wishes, she bathed once each day with the help of her lady's maid. In the highly hot and humid environment of Port Royal, she had to agree that the habit had its benefits. But how could it be that even this personal matter had to fit into the rigid discipline he imposed on his home? The silent Dora attended her each afternoon, pouring water along her back, helping her wash her long black hair. Corwin was unused to personal attendance. She had kept none at Chase Manor, and she had made little use of the one Christina assigned her at Wakefield Townhouse. Even Margaret had been more of a traveling companion than a maid. To be forced to accept Dora's careful ministration made Corwin very uncomfortable. Yet when she had approached Dujols regarding this preference he had made his wishes clear. A young woman of her station required a maid. So Dora remained, serving as Corwin's personal attendant regardless of her wishes. Shortly after Corwin began bathing every day, she noticed that when she was not with Dora or Dujols, another servant always stood nearby. When she strayed near a door that led to the outside world, her attendant would move closer to her as if afraid she might try to escape. Wherever Corwin might find herself, whether in the garden, or reading in the ornate lounge, she was always watched by servants who never spoke a word, instead they communicated with looks and glances, hand motions and demonstrations. There was none of the spirited conversation and laughter between staff members that had marked every home she had ever been in. Her attempts at communication above and beyond simple orders were ignored. She might ask for water or request a specific gown and they would obey. But if she asked for their names or for any information about them or Dujols they moved away. Once, in reply to her direct order to allow her to leave the house, Adam had taken a stand between her and the front door. He slowly shook his head from left to right. Clearly he understood every word she said, and just as clearly she would never hear him speak. He would also never let her leave without his master's permission. He was the strongest of her silent jailers. On the day Corwin succeeded in eliciting a smile from the girl she presumed to be Dora's daughter with a well-timed splash of water, she saw Dora reach for the girl and shake her by the arm. Thereafter Dora only ever attended Corwin alone. Clearly every effort was being made to maintain her complete isolation. When Corwin had been in Dujol's home for an untold number of weeks, she began to think the unthinkable. Dujol's hadn't forwarded her letter. If Ben had been contacted he would have come right away. The trip to Virginia from Port Royal was surely no more than three or four weeks in length, even allowing for ill winds. What, then, could Dujols have in mind for her? Why should he play out this pantomime? If he did not plan to return her to her brother, what did he intend? Did he plan to make her his mistress? He had never approached her in this fashion and Corwin found it difficult to believe that this was his aim. After all, why should he have waited so long?
Perhaps her unwillingness to discuss her capture piqued his curiosity, and he meant to wait for her confession. Perhaps he thought he could collect more from whomever she was escaping than he could from her family. Maybe negotiating with someone in Port Royal would involve less risk than the same transaction with an officer in the English Navy, Corwin found herself thinking as she regarded herself in the mirror. It was time to take matters into her own hands. At Dijol's request, she was wearing a pale blue gown that made her eyes seem greener, her skin more vibrant, and caught the color in her hair. This was the first time he had taken it upon himself to dictate exactly what she wore and it marked a disturbing trend, if she permitted this to continue, she had no idea where it might lead. She had not come to do Joel's for new clothes, a pleasant room, or even sustenance. She had come to him for aid in returning to her brother. She would not sit quietly by waiting to discover what his plans for her might be, her first step must be to contact Ben. After her many experiences with blackguards and knaves, Corwin could not bear to return to the streets. She had no illusions left. She knew she would find herself in a brothel, or on the block, or perhaps dead if she tried to escape the protection Du Joles offered. This time she would wait to be rescued if at all possible, without knowing how she might deliver the message, Corwin took up a quill and paper, and penned a concise letter to Ben outlining her location and her concerns about her protector. On the outside of the letter she promised a rich reward to whoever would carry this message to Captain Benjamin Chase serving the English crown in Virginia. Sealing the letter with candle wax she prayed that Ben would one day hold this letter in his hands. When Dora came to collect Corwin for the evening meal, Corwin took the woman by the arm and led her to the window. Whispering, lest someone be standing outside the door, she pressed the note into Dora's hand and said, Please, you must help me. The woman jerked her hand away as if burned and shook her head violently, I know you are frightened. But if you help me. Dora raced from the room as though the devil himself were behind her, Corwin belatedly followed her into the hall through the open door. She saw Dora disappearing down the stairs, clearly on her way back to the kitchen. Dismayed, Corwin made her own descent down the long flight of stairs, walked across the marbled foyer and stepped into the dining room where Dujols was entertaining an English planter who had made for himself a home in one of the southern colonies. Though only the three of them dined, Dujols had set a grand meal. Several kinds of shellfish, exotic fruits, and multiple bottles of French wine. The broad-shouldered blue-eyed planter was well-dressed, obviously well-educated, and he seemed to find Corwin charming when she asked him about his lands. He told her he had a plantation near Charleston in the Carolinas where he farmed tobacco, indigo, and cotton. Glancing at Dujols, Corwin asked him what he knew of Virginia. A prosperous colony. Of course their weather is cooler than ours and their crops tend to be smaller. It cannot compare with lands farther south in either soil or climate. And it has become much over-occupied of late. The planter allowed. The king quarters a mighty military contingent there, Corwin said toying with the stem of her wine glass. We in the colonies have had need to depend greatly on English, French, and Dutch for protection. Pirates have always preyed upon our ships as we navigated the coast and set forth across the seas. Some consider us lucky to have retained their interest and support. But I will say these remote powers, particularly Her Majesty's Navy, oft times obstruct the natural trade between colonies greatly as well. In the last year navy vessels have taken more than 80 men from ships I own to serve the crown. I feel their loss greatly. How can this be called anything other than theft? The planter replied. Corwin noted that as he spoke the planter's eyes fell to the swell of her bosom above the bodice of her dress. Despite herself, she felt the blood rush into her face. 
Why were men so forward? Did they aspire to nothing more than to lie between the legs of every woman they met? Sailors that come from England jump ship when they are in sight of shore. And when the crown cannot retain their own men, they feel free to take mine. Reaching for his glass, glanced at Dujols seeking agreement. Dujols, who seemed to be paying only passing attention to the conversation, finished his wine. We all know the world is changing. It is something we must all come to accept. Dujols agreed, as I am sure our host has told you that I was abducted by pirates on the way to join my brother in Virginia, said Corwin to the planter with just a quick look at the little French man. Yes. Indeed I have heard of your great misfortune. The planter leaned forward and his look became very sharp indeed. In fact, our host and I have sent a message to Virginia and I have been waiting for my brother, Captain Benjamin Chase to collect me. I fear our message has been waylaid. I was hoping you might help us carry another letter to him. Corwin turned to find Dujols was now studying her. You must have been very frightened. I have heard that pirates are not kind to their women. I can only imagine what horrors you have endured my lady, said the planter. Fortunately I was confined in the hold and remained unmolested for the short duration of my voyage here. I was, therefore, spared any brutality. But, again, I was wondering if I could prevail upon you to help us carry another message north to Virginia. The planter seemed incredulous. You are telling me that no man aboard a pirate ship laid a hand on you? This is the first I have ever heard of such an occurrence. I wonder that it could be true. Pirates are not known to be temperate beasts. Many a woman has lost first her honor, then her life, in their hands. Your treatment must be called a miracle. I cannot speak to how others are treated, sir. And I do not know why I enjoyed such great good fortune. But it is a thing for which I am grateful. I would very much like to hear what transpired. How were you captured? Have you really no idea what ship took you? No idea who commanded it? In these waters I know so many vessels and their commanders. That is interesting to hear, sir. Do you think you can help me get word to my brother? This is a matter I will discuss privately with our guest my lady. I must ask you to retire now. You look flushed. I fear the rich food and wine and stimulating conversation have excited you far too much. I would not have you become ill, said Dujols. His piercing eyes gave her a warning she could not ignore. Of course my lord. Then I will bid you both a good evening, said Corwin. Her heart was pounding as she slipped out of her chair, nodded at Dujols and the planter, and set off for bed. Once in her room, Corwin tried to make sense of the odd evening. The planter had all but ignored Dujols. He had devoted his attention entirely to her. He followed every move she made and every bite she ate. He had asked all those questions about her abduction and had entirely ignored her requests for help. It had been quite improper for him to question her virtue. Why had he not agreed to carry a message north for her? Was this not a reasonable favor for a young woman in her position to ask? Dora arrived to help Corwin undress for the evening. Standing behind her mistress, she slowly untied the laces that ran down the back of her gown, then knelt and slipped the garment over Corwin's hips to puddle on the floor at her feet. She went on to tackle the underskirt, crinolines, stockings and shoes as well. Eventually Corwin was naked and Dora spent several irritating minutes bathing her with a damp sponge and perfumed water before helping her into a fine lawn nightdress. Then she left the room, not giving Corwin so much as a second to address what had transpired between them earlier. Once in bed, Corwin turned down the lamp on the little table near her bed. Then she allowed herself to wonder why Dujols ever asked her to dine with his guests. Was she some kind of exotic animal he paraded to impress them? Why would none of his servants speak to her? 
Corwin couldn't help but feel she was the only member of the household who did not know a terrible secret. Hours later, Corwin found herself being shaken awake. The room was completely dark and a smooth hand was pressed down hard over her mouth. It took Corwin a long frightening moment to realize who was in the room with her. When she knew, her heart skipped a beat, Dora took her hand slowly from Corwin's lips. She pulled the bedclothes away from Corwin's hands and silently urged her to get out of bed. Dora led her to the bedroom door which she opened gingerly. In the hall below she could hear Dujols and the planter talking. Perhaps they were finally discussing the terms by which more unfortunate souls would be sentenced to live and die tending the planter's fields. Dora pulled Corwin swiftly into the room next door to her own. Corwin could see this room was outfitted as a private parlor. Moonlight illuminated a chaise lounge, a round gaming table with chairs around it, a plush sofa covered in cushions, an array of liquor bottles and fragile long-stemmed glasses. Along one wall she saw a cabinet very like the one in her room but it lacked the large black mirror. Dora led her to the cabinet and slid aside a long panel. Suddenly Corwin could see every inch of her room as if it were a stage. The glass that that appeared to be a mirror in her room, was actually a highly polished, lightly silvered, window. Corwin's blood ran cold. She stripped and bathed every day before this aperture. He watches me. Corwin turned to look at Dora. The woman pointed at two glasses and a half-empty bottle of wine on the table. It took Corwin a moment to understand. Then her face flushed. Duge Oles had invited the planter to watch her as well. She thought of all the men who had visited in the last many weeks since she had come here. How many had seen her unclothed during her afternoon bath? Dora slid the panel shut, then took Corwin by the hand. Together they reversed their journey. When Corwin was back in her room, Dora turned to leave. Corwin caught her arm. Corwin tugged the woman to her little desk, slid open a drawer, and then she pressed the folded note she had penned earlier into her resisting hand. Dora, please give this to any honest sea captain in port. If my brother only knows where to look for me, he will come. I swear it. And when he comes for me I shall take you and your daughter as well. You don't have to stay here. Dora shook her head and tried to give the message back. Corwin refused to take it. Why? Surely you know we must escape. Do you want to remain here? Dora rolled her eyes as if Corwin was mad. Then, as if making a decision, she pulled Corwin with her to the window where moonlit fell in a silver shower. She opened her mouth to the moon and Corwin saw, to her shock, the woman had no tongue, just a scarred stump within her mouth. Dora had no way to tell anyone anything, the desire to retch was overwhelming, and it took every ounce of Corwin's will to keep down the contents of her stomach. Such cruelty was unimaginable. Still she held on to Dora's hand. When at last she could speak, Corwin said, Take the note. Give it to someone who can help us. It is the only hope we have. I wish I could do it. But he will not let me set foot out of the house. You or your daughter must go to market. Surely someone outside of this terrible place will help us. Please. We must find a way to escape. Dora finally accepted the note and hid it in her sleeve. Corwin moved back to her bed and slipped under the covers as Dora darted to the door and then out into the hall. Alone in bed, Corwin considered all the horrors she had learned in the space of few moments. Now she understood. Dujols meant to sell her. The men who came here were buyers. The one she had met today must have been very interested in her because Du Jules had permitted him to speak to her at length. They might be setting her price even now. If Ben did not find her quickly, Corwin might spend the rest of her life in chains at the mercy of whoever her new master chose to share her with. Worst of all, that might be the best outcome she could realistically hope for. Because now she knew that Du Jules was a monster. 
She alone of all those he shared his home with had the capacity to speak. He had silenced all around her, and if she displeased him he would silence her as well. Elizabeth stirred as Black left the bed. Auburn curls spilling in every direction, she opened her eyes and looked around in panic, as though fearing that he had left without saying farewell. Is it morning already? It seems we just went to sleep, she asked, sitting up to look out the window at the pre-dawn sky. We did. Black replied. She was such a beautiful woman, red hair, green eyes, and pale translucent skin. Perhaps most important, she had a good heart. Since the day he had purchased her on the auction block and instantly set her free, she had been devoted to him. He wished he could love her just as much. He had wondered a hundred times why he didn't and why that mattered. Why must you leave so early? Why do sailors always strike out at the break of dawn? She demanded. Black returned her smile as he pulled on his boots. I suppose we all learn never to waste the daylight. Ships become so very dark at night, he replied. Her smile faded as he finished dressing. Wrapping her arms about her shoulders she steeled herself to ask a hard question. I never thought to see you again and I am so very glad you have spent these please tell me you will be coming back. He knew she was asking him to make a commitment to her. She had every right to ask. She had every right to a respectful answer. The last few days had been a reprieve for both of them. After weeks spent searching for Corwin he had forced himself to consider the notion she might be dead. That thought had opened an abyss beneath his feet and he had fallen to drink and brawling. Battered and unconscious he'd been dragged here. And Elizabeth had cared for him. First with a bath and food, and then by sleeping beside him. Nature had taken its course, he should never have seen Elizabeth again. He had bid her farewell when he set off for England to regain his estates. He had made a decision then not to take her with him. She was part of one world and he was returning to another. She said she understood. But now he was back in Port Royal. He would not be going home. And she had a right to ask for something more. But Corwin could not have fallen off the earth. She hadn't come up at auction but she had to be on the island somewhere. She hadn't been dragged to the docks and rowed out to a ship unless it was in a box. He, and the men of the Wraith, had spoken to every man who worked the docks. She was still on the island, dead or alive, and he was going to find her if it meant searching every structure and turning over every single stone. He would find the magical raven-haired girl he had stolen from the sea. What if you never find her? What if she is dead? Elizabeth asked. Black stood. Liza, there are a hundred men, if not a thousand, within a mile of here who would serve you better than I ever have. Than I ever will. This girl I am looking for, she trusted me. Do not make the same mistake. Let yourself fall in love with someone who is less of a monster and more of a man. When Black looked up he saw silent tears pouring down Elizabeth's face. He bent down to press a kiss into her forehead, then he left the room. As he walked down uneven stairs in the blazing tropical sunshine, he vowed to himself he would never return. Elizabeth was one of the few women in Port Royal who had some level of control over her fate. The tavern above which she slept was one he had purchased and given to her just before leaving for England. She had everything she needed to build a bright future except her freedom from their shared past. Today he would give her that too. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond 5.